spoken lately. I haven't thought about flying for a long time. I haven't dreamed of that moment when I was alone above the clouds for a long time. I haven't dreamed of waking up in a room surrounded in blue and green grass more years than I could dream of memory. I haven't walked back into the past or scratched on the doors of my origins, where it all came from, since I held up that cape for the last time. Return to Kent Town 10th year anniversary edition is a revised version of Ambien's first poetry book. The book can be purchased from Amazon and it contains numerous additional material. Spoken Hi, it's Andian from Spoken Label. A spoken Label was originally set up at the beginning of 2016 and records show it started off really as a one-off podcast chatting to writers, poets and artists. Over time, it became monthly, then weekly and occasionally nowadays it goes on that to a more regular basis. To date, I've done over 330 sessions and I'm always looking for new poets, writers, artists, singer-songwriters, general interesting creative people to come onto the podcast. You can find this on all the usual networks over Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Podbay and dozens of others. But it does have a central database of spoken label, which is all one word, dot bandcamp.com. Obviously now, to help me with the running costs of this podcast, I'm always grateful for any kind of donation to assist me with it. You can either do the donation through the Bandcamp page by putting in a fee to download one of the free podcasts, or send it over to my PayPal to aen1mpo at yahoo.co.uk. My email address again is aen1mpo at yahoo.co.uk. Enjoy the podcast. Take care. Bye. Spoken Label. Hi guys, Andy and Spoken Label. Back in the house on a bank holiday Monday evening. I've had one of those days today. Been over to watch my local non-league football team and it got got drenched. It was a crap match, but it was grateful to see my friend Kevin. And... So to top it all, I've got a dear friend of Spoken Label with me today, the wonderful Yvonne Riddick. Now, I suppose met Yvonne, we just talked about it just under three years ago, didn't we, as well, on Spoken yeah, Label. And it's gone incredibly quick, because when I bring people back on Spoken Label, say second, third, or even whatever times, I always look back at the previous podcast, but I can't believe it, we spoke three years ago, Yvonne. That's gone so quick. It feels like yesterday, doesn't it? it? Does it sound? I think it's time we're both getting old, really. To be honest, with yourself. <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know you've been over so, so we Bridge today, haven't you? As well, so you're just telling me That's before. Right. So, are you, are you planting trees around there? Did you say? Yeah, I was planting um, trees and shrubs to make a hedge. So oh. it, was, it was great fun. I had a brilliant day. Um, I was on this really, really nice farm up near a clough. Oh yeah, and. The owners rescue sheep and horses and rabbits. So I met all these wonderful animals. I met some really nice people. And we, I must have put in, I think I put in 30 or 40 hedge plants. I hope I did anyway. 
Um, but it was brilliant. We, we started the day with just these, these field edges that had some kind of stones and rocks in them and were fairly bare. And we ended up with full-on hedges. So it was really lovely, actually. It was oh. a great event. Oh, yeah. That's a great... It's a great... I think we get bank holiday months like we do. It's an excellent one. I'm always a believer going and doing something a bit unusual, whatever you're doing that. And it's only like a great, great day with that. Now, obviously sidetrack what we're here for today now it's like people that don't know you we better state you're not a farmer before we start have we really <laughs> so <laughs> that's why but even I'm, i can imagine you knowing you and your you and your family would be great at that so tell us obviously okay. a look very briefly about yourself first of all and obviously there's people that give you the introduction um, I publish poetry and nature writing. I'm also a researcher. So something I found out about not so long ago is that the poet Seamus Heaney actually sold bog poems to raise funds for a bog conservation charity. Oh, I wow. thought there was, yeah, I thought there was a lovely um, resonance to that linking an actual bog poem to practical bog conservation. Um, he was also a great opponent of motorways in yeah. ecologically or historically sensitive places, Heaney. So he's even more of a hero of mine now because I now know he supported conservation causes as well as libraries and museums and charities and all sorts of good causes. So that's uh, one of the things I do for the day job. Brilliant. Now, obviously, um, make people aware, obviously, but that kind of sums up perfectly what we're moving on to now. So obviously you've done a number of like chat books before, but we're going to talk today really about your, I didn't realise this actually, your debut full-length poetry collection, Burning Season, which has come out, just, just come out, obviously. This is recording just before it, but it's coming, this is coming, coming out after your book's coming out in end of May, Burning Season. Now, tell us first of all, because this is perfect, because obviously like, book itself is a fascinating book but tell us first of all then about where the book came from then because when we spoke originally back in 2020 I know you'd bought out your chat last chat book hadn't you Spike Nard the year before that so tell us about Burning Season then why Burning Season to start with yeah, well, it's the culmination of a lot of work. It's been quite a long road for me publishing my debut collection. I wouldn't have it any other way, though, because I think I've had the time to pick out the poems that were best, that worked best together. And it's taken a while to put together. I think one of the few things that kept me sane during lockdown was stacking up all the poems that I had that I thought might have a place in a book and shuffling through them and trying to put them in order. And there's quite an interesting lockdown story to this. Um, mm. My flat that I used to rent in the middle of Manchester had this internal mezzanine floor that nobody used for anything. Oh, and yeah. sometimes I'd go out and I'd sit on it with my computer and I'd do my work. And um, I used to lay out all the poems on the floor and look at them and I'd put fire these are the poems that are more earthy or rocky and I group them according to elements then I thought I'll see if I can group them according to a story so I think there are a couple of stories in Burning the Season really um there's the story of my father's life um mm. his pretty untimely death and the process of, of grieving for him and also thinking about how different generations approach issues like fossil fuels and energy and climate change. 
So my dad uh, was at the, my dad's career took place during the, the height of the North Sea oil boom. As ah. a young lad, when he was doing his training as a petroleum engineer, he'd be out on the North Sea platforms. Um, he then had some fairly long postings abroad. He lived in Oman with my mum. And when I was a child, I also lived in Kuwait City. So there was this sense that that oil was this amazing source of energy. It was seen in those days as even cleaner than coal. And in my generation, there's been a bit more of a day of reckoning, really. There's an awareness that fossil fuels cause climate change. Uh, they're also one of many reasons behind major international conflicts. I mean, what, what the oil price does during a war such as the war with Ukraine is, is really quite interesting. And energy prices have gone up um, during this last winter, haven't they? Um, but the oil conflict that has fascinated me ever since I went to the Middle East is the first Gulf War. Now, Oil and exceeding production quotas was was the trigger for the first Gulf War. This was a reason um, for the conflict. I didn't witness it in person. Everyone at school, all their parents had a Gulf War story. Loads of people I knew would discuss it. It was a huge, huge historical moment um, for people in Kuwait. I thought there weren't enough poems in English that were being written about it. I wanted to have a go. And I think in my poem in oils, I hope it's clear that I'm working with memory. I'm working with fragments of an event that that happened, um, even though I, I wasn't there to see it. Uh, what I did witness was Operation Desert Thunder. Oh, and oh. I was evacuated during that. So at one point, um, Saddam Hussein refused to admit UN weapons inspectors into Iraq. And at that point, there were escalating concerns in Kuwait. A lot of people thought that Saddam Hussein had greater weapons capability than he had. They thought he had more weapons of mass destruction than they, they later found. And there were concerns that there would be another invasion. Um, so my mother, my sister and I were evacuated, not because any fighting actually occurred, but in the, the hope that if it did, um, we would be out of harm's way. And uh, my dad had all these these grand plans for trying to escape because, of course, it's not particular. It's not seen as particularly great if you, you know, if you're a working grown man and, and you just run away because there's something going on in, in the place where people have quite graciously let you come to work. Um, so he had all these plans for, you know, escaping to the border with Saudi Arabia through the desert. Would he have to ride around on a bike because he couldn't get in his car? You know, all sorts of mad things. Really, really crazy plans that my parents had. Um, this is when, yeah, they were they were young and and cool and they they did adventurous things. And frankly, you know, it was an unsettling time for the whole family, I think, as well, and an unsettling time for, for people in, in the Middle East generally. So yeah, we had some adventures. Yeah, it sounds like you did that now. Tell us a bit more about the oils then, because obviously you've, we've just been talking about as the poem. I loved that poem, I really did. And I loved the fragmented formula. You've doubly said it about memories and 
but if people see the problem, it's not just one memory or even your memories or your parents' memories. There's all kinds of memories in that. Okay, it's a very sort of tapestry sort of piece, and I loved it. It's one of my favourite pieces in the book. So tell us about then how this piece came together then, because it's because people read it, it's not a piece you definitely could have, as we say, knocked together over two, two or three glasses of wine. That's for sure of it. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, not, yeah. I would draw that comment, not wine, cider in your case. People were back to previous podcasts, well, no, you love your homemade cider. We'll, we'll come on to that in a bit. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah, sure. Homemade cider is, uh, is certainly a good shout. Um, yeah, it's it's got all sorts of fragments of, of different voices, really. I wanted to explore and find more out about mm. the oil fires in Kuwait. These were a really, really huge environmental and political uh, mm. event. My, my dad and his colleagues would discuss them and, and tell me and my sister about them when we were children. So retreating Iraqi forces set the oil wells um, and oil infrastructure in Kuwait alight as they withdrew from Kuwait. Um, and this was a, a, pretty, a pretty dramatic um, time. I've actually heard from Kuwaiti students of mine whose parents yeah. witnessed this, that you could not see the sun. The sun was as pale as the moon normally is in daylight. This is this is what people have told me um, long after I left Kuwait. And it's really quite an interesting image. And um, yeah, I heard from another student of mine who'd, who'd come over to study in Britain from Kuwait that the smell of the oil was overwhelming. And you could also smell dead sea creatures because it caused all sorts of destruction to marine life. Um, so I watched documentaries about how the oil fires were put out. It took pretty specialist skills, including the skills of the reservoir engineer, brilliant, brilliant woman, who was my father's manager. Yeah. Um, also, uh, some specialists in oil fires from Canada uh, came along. And their, their testimonials of, of not being able to see daylight properly were, were really quite harrowing. I was also really struck by some footage of birds who had settled on the lakes of released oil and they would wow. drink it and go to bathe in it. Whoa. I know, that, that image really, really stuck with me. It's incredibly disturbing. Um, I was interested in what journalists and eyewitnesses experienced in Iraq as well. So I sampled all sorts of things that I had overheard, testimonials, um, an Amnesty International report, an interview with an American photographer who took a very, very famous photo of a, a burnt Iraqi soldier um, who'd been trying to escape from his vehicle. Um, a, a journalist in Iraq who had uh, who remembered the conflict, um, and I I felt as though I was making a, a tapestry. And actually, I think that's a, I think memories work in a similar way. Really, yeah, you might have a select fragments, and you think, okay, what actually happened? Have I remembered that accurately? Um, I don't feel that I have much of a right to write about international conflict myself. So. 
I was quite careful to pick sources and um, in the back of the book, I acknowledge all of them. Yeah, I it's worth noticing in the back of the book, there's yeah. what, two pages <laughs> of acknowledgements for people are wondering, <laughs> which shows basically what thoughts gone into this book, dead truth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a different method from the method I would normally use, um, piecing together mm. quotations. It's a little bit more uh, modernist than it is, you know, my usual mode, which is more lyrical. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. But yeah, I, I enjoyed making it. It felt like a poem that had probably been waiting for me to try to put it together for a long time. Um, definitely, definitely. Definitely. It felt it. It felt like it was not just a any sort of poem. It was a, it was a point stepping stone for you. I think a lot of this book is really for you. Cause I think it's letting you, it's people on jobs here. We've got the politics side of the oil there. But a lot of the other book, the rest of the book is about your relationship with your father, for example, which is in particular, my, my, my favourite piece was the first piece in the book, Muirburn, which people are wondering, you can find an earlier version of this online, which I think is on the Poetry Society website. So tell us about next time. What made you want to start the book off with this piece? Ted Hughes said something like, there will be a poem that appears early in a poet's career, which is a compact index of everything to follow. So apparently there's a keystone poem that you write quite early on and it forms a pattern of things that will recur later. Mm. Muirburn is one of those poems for me. I think, you know, there, there may well be several that we, uh, we produce in our lives that encapsulate all sorts of themes that are important to us. Um, I was thinking about moorland fires and forest fires when I wrote that poem. Um, when wildfires arrive in rainy Britain, you know that there's a shift occurring and this is quite an unsettling thing to be witnessing. I have seen the, the impacts of climate change escalating as, as I have grown older. So heat waves are intensifying, droughts are becoming worse, the winters are becoming very unpredictable, and what dry conditions bring um, will be an increase in fires. So that link between fire and oil, fire and climate change, and fire and my father's career is one that I think is running as a thread throughout the book. That poem is an elegy for my dad. It was written a few years ago, and I think you can probably tell that it is a poem of grief. Um, and I think in the background of it is this concern about climate change and this worry that even during my childhood, I would see fire beaters up in Scotland by a loch and they, the fire beaters were there so that if you saw a fire um, occurring, if you know somebody had dropped a cigarette butt and it had smouldered and it had caught, uh, you could actually go and you could have a go at putting it out yourself. You know that would be considered an emergency during a drought. Um, and I think that poem gives a sense of of a lot of the work that that was to come. It's not explicitly about the oil industry, but I think the link between oil fires and moorland fires 
is is probably there in my book really um so it starts off with this rather tender and poignant act of, of simply picking up somebody's ashes with a view to scattering them and it continues in a vein that's probably more metaphorical and imaginary than, than anything else you know thinking of many members of your family who you have lost um, as haunting the the poem and, and haunting the book I guess is is the way I would think about it um, and I did have an earlier, I did have an earlier version of it actually, and I, I listed a load of the chemicals and the the minerals and the metals that are found in human bodies, often often as trace elements. So there'll there'll be all sorts of things, including you know there'll be radioactive isotopes in my teeth, which is quite a, an unsettling thought. Um, and therefore, from fallout from nuclear testing, all sorts of weird things that you would not expect um, a person to contain. Apparently, we do contain in trace elements. And I, I intercut a lot of my more lyrical lines with the names of chemicals and, and metals that you would find in a human body. Um, and I was lucky the poem was picked up in the National Poetry Competition and it was commended. The judges read it out and they said those lines slowed the thing down. So in the published version, I pulled them out. And to be honest, I might use them again for something else, because actually it's quite interesting to think of what, you know, I as a living person contain and what traces there, there might end up being in, in, you know, somebody's ashes. It's both unsettling and quite um yeah, quite personal and ecological, I think. I agree with you completely. I know it's, it's a great piece and it's a great way of starting the collection indeed. Now, another thing that came up on the book, and I know we talked about this last time actually as well, so this is my memory, not been bad today, was I know you're sick about your significance being influenced by Sylvia Plath's work as well, and it was great to see a Sylvia Plath reference coupled pop up on top of Esther in the Asylum Garden. Now, tell us a bit more about this piece and what made you want to use that quote by Sylvia Plath at the top of the poem? I'd reread The Bell Jar. I taught it to my students a few years ago, actually. Um, I'm always struck by Plath as a nature poet. I think there are really interesting ecological strains in her work. And she read Rachel Carson. She read Silent Spring. Mm. I always thought uh, it would have been a bit early for, you know, for her, too early for her to have read Silent Spring. But apparently she read it when it was serialised in The New Yorker. So I see her as somebody very preoccupied with the environment. Um, I think like many people during lockdown, I had some moments of thinking the world has gone mad. I have gone mad in it. What Plath writes about mental health and the methods of treatment that people had in the, the late 50s and the early 60s really, really struck me and stayed with me, as I think they do many people who are interested in literature. Um, and I wrote that poem as an attempt to sort of cling to some semblance of sanity while we were going through the pandemic. God, yeah. I think, I, yeah, I think, yeah, I think those images of, of confinement um, 
and being stuck in a medical establishment are probably some kind of um, slant way of approaching how weird it was to be stuck indoors. Yeah, amazing. Raging around us, and if you could, if you were capable of going out even into a garden or a park during lockdown, it was the most wonderful thing ever. Oh so God, yeah, God, yeah, wonderful, wasn't it? It was great. Yeah, I was locked. I was locked up for six months because I know we told you last time we spoke. I'm diabetic. It was like that, that point in question. They sent me home from a day job. Said I was doing this. Telling me, ring us, ring you up, ring us up once a week to let us know you're still alive and we'll keep paying you. But like, it was like, I couldn't even flat. And it was absolutely like, it drove me crazy. I'm like, when eventually I could get out, I had my mask on. It was like, you just didn't know what was going on, did you? Or anything. It was just incredible it was, times. It was so, so strange. Yeah, I mean, even looking out of a window and seeing a tree, if you could not go outdoors, ooh, you know, clinging to any semblance of normality um, was really important. And there, there are layers and layers and layers and layers, layers of references to Plath in that poem. I suppose it's quite a complicated one, really. Um, and also, I was very, very interested in the slightly weird life cycle of figs and the wasps that live uh, in in collaboration, in symbiosis with figs. They actually go into the fruit. It's so strange. Um, and I knew Plath had written so beautifully and so movingly about bees. And I knew if I wrote a bee poem, it would be a cliche poem. So I had to write a wasps in figs poem yeah, just to be a way. little bit different. That's <laughs> right. In some ways, I love it. I wish she was still alive. I'd love to get her on 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 the podcast now and talk about her. obviously every other stuff. But alas, it's not meant to be that one. So so unless we can find a way of bringing people back from the dead, and that's not an impossibility in our society nowadays. So well, so. I mean, she was a great user of the Ouija board with Hughes. So you know, there's there's our our method. Hey, <laughs> yeah, definitely with that one. But then I said we are bringing back dis- uh, extinct animals. With DNA, so so let's bring that poets to a DNA, extinct DNA, definitely. Anyway, <laughs> I'm going to move on because I'm going to say we're causing controversy here. Now, um, there's a couple of things I want to touch on this book, obviously. So I don't, I don't want to keep. I want to give you time for reading, obviously, some pieces for us in the second half. But tell us about what made you want to use some extracts of journals in your book here. For example, your piece in November and December and January. This is one of the other plot lines that I think goes Mm. through the book. So some of the things that I did also to try to stop myself going completely mad during lockdown was I planted some acorns. Uh Um, I had a lot of fun growing them. It was honestly like being a small child again, watching them grow. It was so lovely. And they were my connection to nature when I couldn't go to the places I really wanted to go to, to experience the hills. Um, and the forests and the valleys and the plants. Um, and I, I became terribly worried about the health of these acorns. It was quite funny. I remember when we had we had all the regulations uh, relaxed a little bit and I was able to go away and I'd always fret that they were going to die on me if I, if I went off on holiday. You know, when, back, when you were able to, to go a few places in Britain, but you couldn't really go abroad. Um, And I thought, well, 
there are a couple of different time processes that go uh, that go along in in the book and that occur. Mm. One is a grieving process, so gradually gaining distance uh, from the events of my father's death, thinking it through and trying to sort of set it into some kind of order in my mind because experiences like that can feel a little bit chaotic. Um, another is growing the acorns and actually with the end of, of one life comes the beginning of this really quite weird and unexpected connection with a bunch of trees. Um, mm. And there's another poem uh, called Fire Seed in, in that collection, which is about both pulling up uh, a load of birches that, that, I don't know if you know Crompton, they're older, but yeah, anyway, it's got the this fantastic, love it, and they plant the tree species they want, and they pull out uh, all the other species that they don't want. Um, and I remember both seeing it regenerating after quite a big fire, serious, serious fire. Um, and I remember being asked to help out pull up, absolutely nonsensical, it felt really destructive pulling up the birch trees, but uh, yeah, we replaced them with other things. So I was interested in growth to counterbalance the process of, of death and, and grieving that also goes on in that book. Brilliant. Now, people wondering on the video, I've had to disconnect the headphones now because the sound went yeah. for a few seconds then. So, no, but I agree. Oh, yeah. Fascinating stuff indeed, that one, John. Now, there's a lot, a lot more to talk about this book. I want to touch on... I think it's I think it's the longest piece in the book actually, the conclusion actually, Waterland to wrap up with here, because this was like something I never thought I'd see of you. Where in almost you and your way you went into like sci-fi territory this last book, <laughs> last piece. So I'll be intrigued to see if your next collection is not a sci-fi novel after the detail you put into Waterland. Well, yeah, I mean I I wonder if I would produce anything that would be even even readable if I tried a, a dystopian novel, Andy. I don't know. But yeah, anyway, um, with the fire, I suppose there comes water and there comes the flood. Um, I must have watched Waterworld on the plane back from Kuwait when it I... Like it. it felt like you'd been seeing a Kevin Costner film there. And that's, yeah, one the, exactly. that's one of the worst films I've ever sat through. That it's from terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. But I remember being 10 and watching it on the plane. And I think something in it has uh, has stuck in my mind. But, yeah, I can, I can remember. Um, I lived in Cambridge for a few years. How I didn't go mad with the flatness of the place, I do not know, but I loved it. All the, I loved the, um, I loved the waterways and I used to love walking down by the river. I used to like spotting plants and animals. And I remember I went back actually, there was a really, really old willow tree and it had this huge, huge crop of mushrooms growing on it. And the university had put a big sign saying, we are studying this fungus. Please do not touch it, collect it, remove it or disturb it. And I thought, only in a university town, it was hilarious. Um, and I was aware that my dad had this joke um, just to be mean, he'd always go, ah, give it a hundred years. Cambridge is going to be underwater. It's going to be completely underwater. Um, and 
I think I, I think that those memories were probably working somewhere deep in, in my mind. And in my poem, Waterland, Cambridge is underwater. The North Sea comes back, um, having been drained out of a lot of East Anglia. And people who live there just have to cope with it. So all sorts of weird things happen in my poem. Like I thought, well, you know, what, what would it be like if you just had to adapt and get on with life? You'd, you'd put the books in, in a boat and you could have a floating library. Could you, you know, could you seal some of the buildings and, and have them kind of going about their business as usual underwater? Um, people would have to take to boats if they wanted to go somewhere else. It's a, a very strange poem. Um, it's interesting that you see it as, as a sci-fi sort of poem. I think I see it, it that way. you there, but there is that sort of futuristic element behind it. Yeah. I think there is. I think it's a, a dystopian poem, certainly. But I'm also doing that weird modernist thing where I'm sampling voices as well. So... Um, I, I thought it needed to be a poem that had lots of characters in it. And I can remember, I can remember rebelliously sitting um, in my bed at university when I was supposed to be finishing an essay about Shakespeare. I think it was a, an essay about tragedy and I, I confess I was really bored. And I read Under Milkwood by Dylan Thomas. Um, and I loved the idea of a many voiced sort of radio play. So I think that was, uh, somewhere on my inner ear when I wrote that poem too. Um, it's a climate change poem really, but I suppose it's a playful one and it's one about survival as well and, and trying to adapt and make the best of things, even though they're really, really odd. Yeah, no, great. It's fantastic. I think it's a great way to finish the book off as well. It's like it's just opened the possibilities up to all kinds of things. You know, it's a great way to finish it off. Now, before we get on to, I always like to ask people what plans they have next. I have people that know us too from last time. Well, we went in quite an in-depth discussion of homemade cider. So I have uh -huh. to ask you, how is that going? Have you had any more good homemade cider recently? <laughs> Not very recently. Um, yeah, uni, my friends and I used to make homebrew cider. This was very entertaining. There was an orchard outside our accommodation and we used to juice the apples they got strained through my mate's T-shirt into Ooh. an old bin. <laughs> we just put the lid on and left it there. And this bizarre concoction came out, thoroughly fermented and really strong a few weeks later. Oh, that stuff would knock out a horse. You know, you used today your friends to drink a pint of it. Anyway, it was... Um, it did the job. It got you really drunk. Uh, my mate has been making slow gin. This is my mate, John, who lives in New Mills. And actually, that's probably the best home-brewed fruit-based uh, concoction that I've, I've, been, uh, I've been sampling. It's very, very good. Um, and it's entertaining, actually. My mate, John, um, and my other mate, John, actually, one lives in New Mills, uh, the other lives in Marple, and in Marple, apparently, there is the mother load of slow bushes. And John from New Mills 
goes uh, straying into other John from Marple's territory and goes pinching the slows. And it's it's just incredible. It's magical, that slow gene. Since the last time I spoke to you, and it has been mentioned on the podcast as well, me and Amanda mm-hmm. went on a home um, and, went in and we, she won for us a competition just before mm-hmm. lockdown, actually, where you had to go into a gin distilling factory in, in Manchester. And we were in there all day, just past last time I spoke to you, this was actually. How absolutely insane it was! Like we came back, this we came back with our own basically full bottle of gin, and oh, it helped us get through lockdown. That's a sure bit. Yeah, absolutely. The hangover, the hangovers I had after mine, I kept making mine too strong. Was ridiculous. Oh, no. <laughs> but it's got to be done anyway. Let's anyway. We'll better move on now because I know what me and you were like after last time. People would check. That was probably the longest podcast I've done. Right? They kind of said oh, it all, really. We went on the 20 minute oh, tangents about home brewing. So, but obviously, Yvonne, I know you've got a number of readings coming up, haven't you? Some of which are coming after this podcast comes out, and some before. So, give us a list of what you've got coming up then, reading wise. Sure, I've got a few nice things happening. Um, so on the 26th of May, I'm going to be appearing at the London Review of Books bookshop alongside my mate, Patrick Davidson Roberts, our friend Catherine Lockton and our friend Declan Ryan. So I'm really excited about that. Um, there's loads going on on the 29th of June. I am appearing at the UCLan Festival of the Humanities at the University of Central Lancashire in Preston. On the 2nd of July, I am going to be doing a writing workshop at Burnley Words. And then a bit later in the year, I have a nice reading in Bolton and then one in Berwick. Um, On the 12th of August, I'm going to an art gallery and Maria Isaacova-Bennett has invited me to do that alongside her friend, the photographer Ron Davies. And what we're going to be talking about, actually, is we've done a collaborative piece uh, looking at the Iron Men sculptures. Um, the Anthony Gormley Another Place sculptures on the coast near Formby. So we're also going to be reading poems and I'll be I'll be reading from my book Burning Season 2. So there's loads going on. My diary suddenly got very, very full after being a bit empty for a while. Well, they always say sleep is optional, don't you? So we're definitely that one. So do you have any envisions of where your poetry is going to go next then? Do you have any ideas or yeah. Um I've become obsessed with Peak District poems, and I I know why. I mean, it's you know it's where I go roaming around, walking every single weekend. So my mate Lindsay and I have been chatting about this. Actually, um, I'm writing a long sequence of Peak District poems uh, about walking and also climbing, or at least attempting to climb. There's a lot of falling off in both my life and and in my poems. And uh, yeah, touch wood, it's it's been a lot more comical than uh, than consequential. Um, yeah, I'm writing a big sequence of mountain poems, so I'll wait to see what happens with that and, uh, yeah, how it how it ends up all hanging together, if, if it ever does. <laughs> and hopefully the, your, your side of the book may follow some point in the future as well, then, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, if people obviously want to get hold of your, your new book, on, where do you recommend they go when they wrap, start wrapping up? The best place is the Blood Axe Books website. Um, you can find the book there and also their events page will uh, have a list of all the readings I'm popping at, up at. Brilliant. And if people want to find out more about you, Yvonne, where do you recommend they go? 
Um, my website is yvonnereddick.org. Uh, also, you know, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter. I, I like interacting with people there and I get a lot of my poetry news from Twitter and Instagram, to be honest. So yeah, they're good places to connect. Brilliant, that sounds good to me. What we'll do, we'll wrap up here and wish we're back in a few minutes when the one's going to read out a few pieces from the book. Look forward to this. See you all in two minutes. Spoken me. Hi guys, Andy N. The amazing, and she is amazing. Cider drinker turned fantastic poet of on Riddick. So straight over to Yvonne now, and I'll be asking about gin later on as well. I didn't know you're into gin, so over to you on with your poems. Here's the first poem in my collection, Muirburn. My father weighed a little less than at birth. I carried him in both hands to the pines as October brought the burning season. When I unscrewed the urn, bone grit and chaff streamed out with their gunpowder smell. I remembered the sulphur hiss of the match. How he taught me to breathe on the steeple of logs as the kindling caught and flames quickened. That night, in sleep, I saw the forest clearing by the moor's edge and the ring of his ashes. A skirl of smoke began to rise, bracken curling a fume of blaberry leaves. Ants broke their ranks, scattering, fleeing, and a moth spun ahead of the fire wind. I took the path over the heath at a run. A voice at my shoulder said, you'll inherit fire. And through the smoke, I saw a line of figures beating and beating the heather as the fire front roared towards them. A volley of shouts, keep the wind at your back. My grandmother threshing with a fire broom, dad hacking a fire break, my stillborn brother now grown sprinting to the hollow where the spring used to flow, the whole hill flaring in the updraft. And there, a girl running for the riverside. She wore my face, the shade of ash. Oh, yeah, excellent. Excellent stuff, that one of them. It's, I love what you're reading, you, know, you can feel when you say it in there, you can. It always adds different, I think when poetry is well read, it adds a very different dimension to it too. What do you think when you, read, when you, hear, you hear yourself reading points back sometimes, do you think to yourself, wow, it's so different to the way I envisage it on the page sometimes? It does sound different. I think it helps me draft, actually. Do you do that, Andy, when you're writing? Yeah. Do you yeah, read things aloud? Good, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it's weird. I'm always recording myself after I've done them that way, and it does, it gives it, I'm really very much a performance poet, really, or was anyway, certainly. Like, as a really good storyteller with that, doesn't it? People say that to me when they hear me, and they can really hear it in my words afterwards, and particularly when I'm running up and on stage screaming. But anyway, that's a story for another day. That, so, uh, anyway. Back to you for another piece number two. So I'm going to read you my poem, The Gift. Um, you know, there are all those poems about picking up a pen and actually beginning to write a poem. Um, I'm thinking of, of digging and the thought fox as well. Uh, this is my rather dark and peculiar version of both of those poems. Now, this is the link between an ordinary plastic pen like this one and the oil industry. Um, 
and I think, yeah, I, I've managed to try to get quite a few images out of the humble plastic biro, the gift. I wanted to write speak, but it wrote spark. Loaded with cartridges, it rested on the desk. No one dropped it or chewed the tip, but its tactics grew underhand. I tried to write, je suis européenne. It spoke for itself, je suis iranienne. I unscrewed nib from body. Inside a pipeline of what stirred in the Cretaceous, freighted and volatile. Oceans, continents shifted, the drill bit woke it to burn, liquid to solid carbon black, changing state back to ink. Indelible blots, my hands smudged shirts, doors, tables, each murky finger mark printed a tiny globe, fuel lines from Persian Gulf to Gulf of Mexico. A newspaper flapped to the doormat, slicked gulls wings. Everything written in fire and oil. I tried to sketch a cottage, so the gift drew smoking rubble. A blazing refinery spoke to my line. Thank you for this beautiful waterman pen. Fantastic. Oh, wow. Yeah, you got, again, it's, it's showing me you're reading there. It's very, took, it feels different to piece to me there. It does. And that one, definitely. You know, I'd love to see you do an audio book of this book. So this book sometimes, <laughs> definitely, right? Oh, get, all, you know, get all these like wishing sounds of nature blowing in the background or something, or you're a disturbed people, sounds of dying seals. But anyway, that's a story. No, definitely not tremendous stuff. Anyway, okay, listen, I'm going to shut up babbling. I know you're onto your big conclusion, but now over to you on your third piece. The flower that breaks rocks. He introduced his daughters to Ben Nevis. You take the bearing, line up the arrow. Pointing to Moonlight Gully Buttress, minus one gully. We didn't care until dad found us a saxophrage. Its blooms were spokes of the North Star. Saxifraga means rock breaker. Nivalis, snow saxifrage. Dainty alpinist chinking her roots into fissures and toeholds like crampons in fractures. But I see now what she could only glimpse, that she and the other alpines, rose roots and pearl warts are scrambling skywards until all that remains for them is cloud. Brilliant stuff. Great way to wrap up that today, Yvonne. An absolute pleasure. That is it's such a good book, honestly. And I, I people say I say it all the time, but I don't. And this this is a tremendous book. And I was actually clean forgotten of on this. Actually, it's technically got debut full length collection, isn't it? So it is, yeah. And that's why, because I've because I've known you for a couple of years, like you've done what a number of chat books before it. It's still must have really weird for you, I've said before, bringing out a full-length book after it's a couple of excellently real chat books. So does it feel like it's, for wrap-up, does it feel like a, real, a weight off your mind now, you're like a relief in, oh, wow, it's out? 
Um, yeah, to some extent. I mean, I think the build-up's been quite long, really. I was thankful to do those chapbooks because you get a bit of a practice run, don't you? You get to see what works, what doesn't, and you get practice putting poems together. So I've been thankful, but you, yeah, it's um, a combination of, of real joy, thankfulness, because people have been very, very kind to me. They've helped me with my poems, and that's a wonderful thing. And I'm thankful to my editor as well, of course. Um, yeah, elements of, of trepidation, really, you kind of think, ooh, what's going to happen now? <laughs> but yeah, I'm really pleased. Well, good luck with the book, definitely. It's been a pleasure. So I said before, so, like, people wondering, we've not met yet, but I know I'm going to definitely try and get down to your reading in September in Bolton, because Bolton's my own stomping ground, so I'm going to get there. So anyway, guys, girls, I want to thank everyone today. It's been a pleasure. An absolute yeah. pleasure, this one. So. Yeah. So that's it for another episode for today. Now, as Don Callis over at AW Wrestling says, stay safe and most importantly, stay down over. We'll see you all next time. Spoken later.